You guys tired of that video yet? No way, huh? You got one more week, then we'll be wrapping up this series, heading into a brand new teaching series. This has been Unstoppable Force, working our way through 1 Timothy. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, Unstoppable Force. We're talking about the church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's us. That's his people. And he's working in us and through us, and we're learning what it means to be the church as we work our way through First Timothy. We want to become everything that Christ died to make us. And uh, we come to this morning the topic of contentment, be content in God. Take a look at your sermon notes here. First statement, people who love God with all of their heart are always content regardless of circumstances because they always have what they most want, and that is God. Now, what I mean by this, uh, this idea here, when you love God with all of your heart, what does that mean exactly? Well, it means a lot of things, but here's, here's the big idea is that uh, to love God with all your heart is that you find him more desirable and satisfying than all that life could give or suffering and death could take from you. There's just a contentment in him, regardless of what's happening in your life. And uh, what would be some signs of discontentment? Signs of discontentment. Turn to the people around you and discuss this. See if you can come up with just some signs of discontentment. Don't, don't point to them. <laughs> like you're pointing them out like... Uh, they're discontent. I sit next to them every week, weekend here at Desert Breeze. Okay. Discontentment. Discontentment. Signs of discontentment. I've started thinking about this, and signs of discontentment would be the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Remember, we talked about that last week. Uh, um, Love like family, talked about we gotta first really understand his love for us and then we become loving. And uh, so here would be a, a kind of a partial list. Impatient, you ever impatient? Oh boy, unkind, you ever unkind? Okay, envious, envious, boastful, proud, rude, self-seeking, easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. There's a group right over here that needs a lot of prayer here this morning. It's like, we're going to line you up and I'll lay hands on you without prayer. And then we will pray for you after we put the hurt on you, okay? We'll work you over first of all. And so, I mean, this is just a short list. I think we would all say, yeah, there's, there's certainly times in my life I'm discontent. Just if that's, if that's what discontentment looks like, then yeah, certainly... So would people consider you, those that are closest to you, would they consider you a contented person in God? Would they consider you a contented person in God? That's a great question. If you're loving God with all of your heart, you will be content regardless of, of your circumstances. So I guess we don't always love God with all of our heart. No, we don't. We struggle with that. We, we tend to replace God with a lot of other things that we love more than we love him, and that's what creates this, 
this discontentment, this, this impatience and unkindness and envy and boastful and proud and rude and self-seeking and the rest. Take a look at this uh, C.S. Lewis quote. This has haunted me for many years, this quote. And uh, misery loves company, so I'm gonna, I want you to join me in my misery when I read this because look, listen to what it says. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Really? How about, I'd like to have God and everything else. Any takers here? Yeah. If I got a choice here, God and everything else. But no, he's saying it, it shouldn't really matter to you. It shouldn't really matter. The man, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. So, so if you doubt or question that statement, it's because you have no idea what you have in Christ. You're not living in the reality of what you have in, in Christ. You should be able to say, yeah, it doesn't matter to me. Whether I'm, I'm rich, poor, it doesn't matter wherever I am in the socioeconomic ladder, as long as I have him, as long as I have him, and, and that's a person that really understands what they have in him. So this morning we're going to look at what is true about contentment. Our text will teach us that and then how to be content in God. Before we read our text and unpack these notes, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Let's ask for God's help. Father God, you satisfy the longing soul and the hungry soul you fill with good things. Psalm 107.9. Intimacy with you is life's most satisfying reality. We acknowledge that we live in one of the most free and prosperous cultures in the world, and yet discontentment is rampant. We confess that our sinful tendency is to look to created things to satisfy the deepest longing of our soul rather than looking to you, our creator. So we pray this morning as we study your word through the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us what is true about contentment, how to be content in you in any situation for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. Let me read through the text here. First uh, Timothy chapter six, starting at verse one. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has unhealthy craving. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, or, content, or godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is the word of the Lord. And so let's take a look at, look at your notes here. And so what is true about contentment? Here's your first fill in the blank. Your contentment is not predicated on your circumstances. Your contentment is not predicated on your circumstances. This is based on verses one and two. This is a continuation of chapter five, Love Like Family. We talked about it last week. Listen to what he says. Let all who are under a yoke uh, as bondservants. This was not a desirable place to be in this day and time, a slave. Let them regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. So they're, even in those despicable circumstances, they are to honor their masters so that the name of God and the teaching may, be, may not be reviled. And then he even says something here about those, if you have a believing master, don't, don't slack off just because they're a believing master. You need to continue to respect him, and even more so because it benefits someone who's part of the, the family. And that's what he says here in verse 2. Now, although slavery is the product of sin that the Bible condemns, we're not going to get into that here this weekend. We talked about that when we went to our Exodus series. Um, and so although, although slavery is, is the product of sin that the Bible condemns, slaves should, is what he's saying here, slaves should, if you're in that despicable set of circumstances, slaves should live for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel. Now, the only way you can do that is to be content in God even in the worst of circumstances. You've got to learn contentment. Love God with all of your heart. Now, we're not slaves like in verses 1 and 2 here, but... But we can become slaves to our circumstances. You can become a slave to your circumstances, such as you can become a slave to what is happening on Wall Street. Or you can become a slave to, to what's happening with Washington politics. You can watch too much Fox or any conservative network and it can drive you crazy where you're wrung out all the time. Or you can be a slave to your workplace. How many have ever had a boss that you actually dreaded going into work? Show of hands. I've had a job like that a few times, and it's just, it's horrible. It's, it's just, it's, it's hard to get up in the morning to go, go in there. But, but you don't want to be a slave to that. You can be a slave to that, but you don't need to be a slave to that. Or you can be a slave... Uh, to how you are doing relationally, your relationships, or, or physically. Maybe you have some problems physically or financially. You don't have to be a slave to any of these things. Look at what Elizabeth Elliot said. She said this, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. I like that. I need that, like every day. In fact, turn to the people around you and say, let's just say your friend's struggling with their circumstances, and so you're going to tell them this. You're going to say, the secret is Christ in you, not you in a different set of circumstances. Do that real quick. Tell the people next to you. Now your friend's going to turn and punch you in the nose, okay? <laughs> he says, what? I want changed circumstances. Don't give me any of that 
Jesus stuff. No, it's Christ in you. The key is Christ in you, not you in a different set of circumstances. He's going to use those circumstances to transform your life. And you're going to become more conformed in the image of Christ, and that's the ideal life. That's where you want to be. And the more you're like Christ, the more you can face anything and the more contentment you're going to find. That's, that's the point here. Okay, here's number two. Healthy doctrine produces a life of contentment. So we're talking about, we're answering the question, what is true about contentment? So your contentment is not predicated on your circumstances. Number two, healthy doctrine produces a life of contentment. Now, first week of this series, the title was Doctrine Matters. It was chapter one. And this was the thesis statement, doctrine matters because healthy doctrine promotes a healthy faith, and a healthy faith is a life of love, and a life of love is a life overwhelmed by God's love. We talked about that most listened to message thus far in this series. And, um, and so look at what it says in verses uh, three through five. It's actually telling us how important having healthy doctrine is to our contentment. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, heterodoxy, bad doctrine, by the way, there's a lot of that going on in our country today, a lot of bad doctrine, unhealthy doctrine, heresy, and does not agree with sound words, that's healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. In other words, if it doesn't help you to have a high view of God and, and love God with all of your heart, uh, that it's bad, it's not good doctrine. He is puffed up, says the result of this, is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Have you ever been in a small group before or around people that just want to stir the pot all the time? It's like, good night. It's irritating. It's just like, and that's what he's talking about here. He's just talking about this is an unhealthy person. They have unhealthy doctrine. They're not trying to help you to, to know Christ better. They just want to stir the pot. They just want to make issue out of anything and everything. And it's what it is, it's conceit. It's empty glory is what that is. Conceit, the word, it means vain glory. The word vain means empty. So they're empty of glory. They're, they're desperate to, to find what only can be found in Christ because they wouldn't be like that. They wouldn't act like that. And a lot of it has to do with their bad doctrine. So it just says he's puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy. Notice this. This would be discontentment, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Believe me, if you're around healthy people, safe people, they're going to help you to see Christ more clearly. That's their goal. They want you to see Christ more clearly. And they're going to help you to love others in your life more deeply. And they're going to help you to become more of what God wants you to be. That would be a healthy person. He's just saying, no, this is bad doctrine. These are unhealthy people. Deprived in mind, depraved in mind, deprived of truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So that's, that's the prosperity gospel that's that's dominant in in American culture and and on TV. It's like God is a means to an end. God is a means to an end. How do you know if God is a means to an end to someone? they, they, They defect from the faith when hard times hit. It's because they're using God. They're coming to God to get from him rather than to be with him. And so there's a tendency that they will defect from God when times get really, really hard. 
And uh, it's, it's just a sign that they're using God. Now, take a look at this. This is from Larry Crabb. I've used it multiple times, and I've kind of paraphrased it. It's really a great statement to even memorize and to, and, and to think about. It says, how a person mentally evaluates the events in their life determines how they will feel and how they will behave in response to those events. So it's not the bad things that are happening to you. And I'm not in any way minimizing the bad things that are that have happened to you, that may be happening to you, that will happen to you. You will have bad things happen to you. It's inevitable. The Bible tells us that. We live in a fallen, broken world. And it's not the events of your life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's your evaluation of those events. And that evaluation is based on, as it tells us in Romans 12 too, it's either gonna be, your evaluation is either gonna be conformed to this world or transformed by the renewing of your mind according to God's word. So you're gonna either look at your events through this filter of the, the world system and a lot of bad doctrine, or you're gonna look at it through God's word, a biblical world view, a biblical world, that's what you need. Believe me, if you have a biblical world view, you're gonna be adding into the equation of your difficulties that wait a minute, God is for me and not against me. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If he did not spare his own son, he's not going to spare anything to take care of me as I'm going through this. So oftentimes we have this inordinate, excessive anxiety, anger, depression as we go through difficult times. I'm not saying this, I'm not saying not to be sad. You're going to be sad. You're going to have trauma. You're going to be, you're going to grieve, but you don't have to be in despair. You don't have to be overwhelmed by that. If you have a biblical worldview and you understand that God is for you and not against you, he's not going to leave you. The Bible says he's not going to abandon you. Nothing can separate you from his love. And so that's really important. That's why to have a biblical worldview, healthy doctrine produces a life of contentment. And then the third thing is contentment protects us against the snare of covetousness. So what's true about contentment? Your contentment is not predicated on your circumstances. Healthy doctrine produces a life of contentment, and contentment protects us against the snare of covetousness. There's a ton of that going on in our culture today. There's a billion-dollar industry that, that wants you to be discontent with what you have. They're spending billions of dollars. They don't have to work that hard either because we have a sinful nature that already just wants anything and everything. We have a sinful nature that tries to fill the emptiness, the inconsolable human longing within our hearts that only can be filled up by God. We're trying to fill it with anything and everything in this world. And so they, they prey on that, and, and so that's part of our world system. And then, of course, we have an adversary that's uh, working, working on all that too. But listen to what it says in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare. Well, look at that word. That's an interesting word, into a snare. And into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now, verse 10 is the most misquoted verse in the Bible. (laughs) One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible. I don't know how many times I've had people say, well, you know, money is the root of all evil. And I go, no, no, actually it isn't, okay? What? It's in the Bible. No, it's not. Not money is the root of all evil. It's what? It's what? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Is a root. It's the love of money. Nothing wrong with money. It's our love for money, inordinate desire for money. 
You love money more than you love God. That's the idea here. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So this inordinate desire for money is the root of all kinds of evils. So it's not, it's not how much or how little money you have, but, but how much money has you. It's your attitude towards money. Now the Bible has a lot of positive things to say about money. I'm just curious here, anybody, uh, just show of hands real quick, um, anybody rich here, anybody? I wanna take your name down here, let me write your name down because I'd like to be your friend. Actually, y'all should be raising your hand because uh, based on what the Bible actually teaches here that uh, if you have more than you need, disposable income, then you are rich. Do you have more than you need? Okay, I would say that most of us have more than we need, and so, so I'm gonna talk about all the rich people, and that's you, okay? That's all of us. Listen to what he says. This is still in the text. By the way, if you go ahead, this is what we'll be looking at next week, but this is part of this text too, but verses 17 through 19 in chapter six of 1 Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, that's us, charge them not to be haughty, that's, that's proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides, this is good, this is really good, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He gives you that stuff to enjoy, but not to love it more than you love him. That's the point. He gives you that. He gives you, all that you have has been given to you by God, and he gives you that to enjoy, but not to replace him And uh, he goes on, he says, they are to do good, that's us, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life, true true wealth. He says, no, no, you 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 have disposable income, so... That's great, that's fantastic, that was given to you by God, but, but now you can use that disposable income and understand what it really means to be rich in God. Now whether you have a lot of money or have very little of money, an inordinate desire for money is a snare, verse nine, a snare, a trap. Now anytime you study through a text, it would take a long time to do this if you went through all the different key words and you wanted to know the Greek word behind those words. What's the Greek? Because the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, everyday language Greek. And so if you have like studylight.org, you go on your, I go usually on my phone, I'll sit there and go, oh, that's an interesting word, snare. Money is a snare. So I looked that up in study light and this is what it said in study light as I looked up the Greek meaning for that word. The Greek word for snare is a a hidden noose that was used to catch birds. Isn't that interesting? It's a great analogy. It's a great picture. A hidden, it's hidden, a hidden noose that was used to catch birds. Once you trap them, you have them. So I was thinking, okay, so how does money snare us? A lot of ways, it tells us right here in, this, in these verses. Verse nine, it tells us senseless, and harmful desires, so senseless means foolish, so foolish would mean that we have not a biblical worldview about money, and so here would be a foolish idea, is that we think money can be our happiness or buy our happiness. And there's a whole book written about that, it's called Ecclesiastes, and and basically Solomon says, that's a wild goose chase without the goose. 
says you're never going to be able to, to satisfy that inconsolable human longing within you. Only God can ultimately do that. Verse 10, it tells us another snare of money. Some have wandered away from the faith. I've seen that. I've seen people wander away from the faith because they pursue their career or education or money or any number of things. They walk away thinking, thinking that that's going to bring greater satisfaction than God. That's insane. That's, you're, you're being duped. You're snared. You're trapped. You think, you think money is going to make you happier than God? You think any pursuit in this life is going to make you happier than God? <laughs> That's crazy. You're duped. You're snared. You're, you're insane. But, but I see it all the time. I even find my heart wandering away towards those things. I go, oh, 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 time out. What am I thinking? I repent and put my faith in Jesus. I have to do that regularly, if not daily. And then um, some have wandered from the faith. Someone have wandered from the faith, and and it's because it causes almost a false sense of security and leads you away from, from the true wealth. Verse 17, it says, charge the rich not to be haughty or proud. How do you know you're proud about money? Here's what I was thinking, is that you tend to cower to rich people, and you tower over poor people, and you're not generous with what you have. You know what it means to tower and cower, cower and tower? Cower means to feel inferior. Oh, do you know how much money they have? Oh, 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 oh. You hyperventilate and think, you know, oh, you make a big deal about, okay, they got a lot of money. Or you, or you look down on people that don't have as much as what you have, or you're not generous with what you have, then, you, then you're trapped. You're trapped by money. Verse 17, it says, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. We can be trapped by money when we misplace our meaning, hope, and happiness. Anything you look to for meaning, hope, and happiness more than God, think about this, when you do that more than God, over time will become increasingly boring and require greater and greater doses after the initial rush. We were talking about it in our staff. Remember when you got that first paycheck as a kid? $100, whoa! That is amazing. And about six months later, you're going, this place doesn't pay me enough. I work hard around here. I, I, I need more money. Well, what about that $100 you got with that first, that first hit? It was pretty big high, wasn't it? Not anymore. Got to have another hit. And that's how it is with drugs. That's why we've had this last year, 2018, 70,000 opioid overdose deaths. What happens is that first that first hit, whoo, it sends you to the sky. And then after a while, that it's no more. You got to do a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, and it drags you right into the grave. And that's what money can do or anything can do. It's never enough because you have an inconsolable longing in your heart that only Christ can fill. And it's called the, uh, the law of diminishing in return. Only God and his love become more and more engaging, exhilarating, and satisfying forever. That's called the law of increasing return. I was meditating on this verse this last week, Proverbs 4, 18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Think of the light of dawn as it's coming up. Actually, over here. It's coming up. As it's barely coming up, it's like the light of dawn in... Uh, that grows brighter and brighter until full day. 
That's our lives as we walk with him, as we seek him with all of our heart. So what is true about contentment? It's not predicated on circumstances. Healthy doctrine produces contentment. Contentment keeps us from being snared by covetousness. How to be content in God? We'll look at verses six through eight to answer that question. There's three things we'll look at here. Here's the first one, live for true wealth. Live for true wealth. This is in verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So turn to the folks sitting around you real quick and just ask them, what's true wealth? What are we talking about when we talk about true wealth? Kind of alluded to it a little bit as we've been working through this. Real quick, stir it up a little bit. See, see what, uh, what they would call true wealth. True wealth. What's true wealth? Anybody want to yell out to me? Good health. What's that? Be rich in God. I like that answer. Family. That would be some true wealth. As long as you don't put too much emphasis over and above God, we tend to do that in our culture sometimes, especially within the Christian community. And then our family goes south and then we're shot. And it's good to have a good family. That's, that, that can be really a great thing. But at the same time, if things don't work out the way you think that they should, that's the reason why you need to love God with all of your heart first and foremost. Those secondary things, certainly you're going to grieve them, but you're not going to be in despair because he's the first love of your life. You've got to always keep that in mind. So what is true wealth? Let's define that here. This is what he says. The Greek word for great gain, so he says godliness, but godliness with contentment is great gain. The Greek words great gain is literally this, mega wealth or true wealth. True wealth is godliness with contentment. That's what true wealth is. Godliness is loving God with all of your heart and contentment would be the natural result. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12. He said it was in the parable of the rich fool. He said some pretty profound stuff there. There was a couple of brothers that were arguing over an inheritance and this is what he said in 12.15 of Luke. Take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. Because real life and real living does not consist in the abundance of the things that you possess. So there's nothing in creation that can satisfy the deepest longing in your soul like the creator is what he's saying. And that would include, you know, I I love my family, but that would even include your family or a good job or any number of things in that category. And... um, and so Philippians 4, 11 through 13, listen to what uh, Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now here's the next uh, verse that is quoted out of context. It's one of the most quoted out of context verses in the Bible. Anybody know where I'm going with this? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we use that as kind of this power verse that we put on mugs and placards in our house and we go, we can do anything. No, you can't. You can be content in any circumstance. You can be content. That's what he's talking about. The context is contentment. You know, I can play professional football if I want to. If I just put my mind to it, I can do it. Look at this, I got a verse for it too. That's not what that verse is for, you numbskull. 
You know, read the context. Quit pulling that out of that, you know, promise thing and read back into the context of, you know, it's good to look at those promises, but you need to go back to where those promises are both first stated. He's talking about contentment here. Now, Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant American pastor and theologian who lived in the 1700s. If you ever get a chance to read any of his books, don't. Because they're really crazy hard. They're really hard to read. And so uh, don't read any of his books, but read books about his books, okay? Because there's, there's a lot of really smart guys that have helped you to understand what he's written. And so you read all of those unless you're really, really smart. But I, I believe he was the most brilliant American pastor ever back in the 1700s. And when he was 18 years old, he preached a sermon called Christian Happiness or Contentment. And he gives three reasons any Christian who knows Christ and knows that he knows Christ can be completely happy or content regardless of circumstances. Here's the three. Three reasons any Christian should be completely content. This was his three-point sermon when he was 18 years old. He says, first, your bad things will work out for your good. Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Even though God hates the sin and suffering in this broken world, he has promised to walk with us through it and use it for our good and his glory. Here's the second one. Your good things can never be taken from you. And I'm basing this just on uh, Romans 8, 29 through 32. Um, The implications of of verses 29 through 32 in Romans 8 are this. Here's some of the implications. This is just a short list. And these are the things that can never be taken from you. These are things that can never be taken from you. I am forgiven of all my sins through Christ. I've been forgiven of all my sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. Do you understand that? Your sins will never be held against you through Jesus Christ. That in itself is just out of this world. It's phenomenal. But, but the list goes on. I'm reconciled to God. I have relationship to God. I have access into the throne room of God. Anytime, anywhere, any place. Based on not my performance, I'm messed up, but based on the performance of Jesus. I'm adopted into his family. I'm lavished with his love. I'm empowered by his Holy Spirit. In verses 31 and 32, I've already kind of quoted to that. If God is for me, who can be against me? If he didn't spare his own son, he's got all everything else in my life taken care of. If you could trust him for your, I was reading Charles Spurgeon this last week and he was kind of reasoning in his little devotional and he was like, if you can trust him for your eternity, why can't you trust him for your temporal issues and needs? It's like, I put my faith in him and I, I believe in him and that's where I'm gonna go for all eternity, but can't you trust him with your temporal needs? He says, that doesn't, it's not very logical. And he says, and that's what the, the logic of that is. It's gospel logic. If he didn't spare his own son, to reconcile you to the Father? Is he gonna spare anything else? No, no, he loves you. No one has ever loved you like he loves you. He has your best interest at heart. He knows what is best for you. I mean, he's, he's wise, as, as high as the heavens are above the earth, the Bible says are his thoughts and his ways. He's infinite, he's, he's perfect in love, infinite in wisdom, unlimited power, he's sovereign. He, he wants what is best for you. He knows what is best for you. He's going to do what is best for you. You can trust him. Okay, I got off on that one just a little bit there and just uh, because that, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to preach that to my own heart. I have to do that daily. I have to do that daily. You have to do that daily. 
My bad things will work for my good. My truly good things can never be taken from me. That was just a short list. Here's the third one. The best things are yet to come. Best things are yet to come. When Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I have learned to be content in all circumstances, his context is very different from ours, to say the least. When you and I are struggling for contentment, we're trying to be content to face our bills or our boss or our work or our struggles with friendship or family relationships. Listen, Paul is facing imprisonment, persecution, torture, and imminent death. That's where Paul is. And it doesn't bother him. None of that bothers him. Why? Because what is the worst thing that can happen? You can die an early, tragic, painful death. No, that's the best thing yet to come. Not the death part, but going to be with him for all eternity. Romans 8.30 talks about, uses this word glorified. That's where you will be glorified set free from the presence of sin. You, have, you are guaranteed a place in heaven through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is what? Is gain? To die is gain? Listen, if, uh, if you die an early, tragic, painful death, and you go to be with him, the only people that are traumatized by that are the people left behind. You're celebrating for all eternity. You're thinking, "Woo! took too long to get up here. I am so thankful. You cut that life short for me down there. That's horrible down there. Thank you, Jesus. That's what people are doing that know Jesus. They're celebrating. They're like, yes, and we're all down here going, oh, tragic, that's horrible, it's like, I don't know, I mean, and it is sad when you lose a loved one, but if they're with our Savior, that's what he's talking about, you're glorified, to live as Christ, to die as gain, Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, 1 Corinthians 15.55, Paul says this, oh, death, where is your victory, oh, death, where is your sting, he's taunting death, <laughs> he is. Come on, death, give me your best shot. You think you can lay me low? Nope, you're sending me to heaven. You can't take me out. See, if God never did another thing for you, if he never did another thing for me and you, we should praise and serve him with our whole being for the rest of our life, all the way into eternity, regardless of what happens in our life. Because our bad things will work out for our good, our truly good things can never be taken from us, and the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. We should be celebrating that. And so, live, your, live for true wealth, hold all things loosely, hold all things loosely, verse seven, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul is paraphrasing Job here. Remember the Old Testament book of Job? Job had a horrible series of events happen in his life where all, uh, all 10 of his children were killed and he lost his, his wealth. His, he had a lot of wealth, mega wealth. And in the face of unbelievable suffering, this is what he says in Job chapter one, verses 20 through 22. Listen, after this devastating loss, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground. And immediately, if you're standing by and you're watching him do this, you're going, oh my goodness, Job's losing it. Job's having a nervous breakdown. No, no, wait. 
it continues on. It says, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Well, he, why? He, because he was holding all things loosely. So the first thing you see in this text is that we see in Job an emotional realism. He's in touch with the reality of his losses. He's grieving. And that's totally appropriate. You have to grieve. You don't deny reality. The Bible never says deny reality. The gospel does not say deny reality. But there's a greater reality that he was aware of even in the midst of this grief. The second thing is that we see Job fully embrace the grace of God. How's the grace of God working in his life? Well, he realized how little he deserved and how much he had received. And really none of what he had received is really his it was only on loan from God. He realized that. And he realized, I've come into this world naked, I'm leaving this world naked. This was only on loan for a while. And here's the point. If I build my meaning, hope, and happiness on the things of this world, it will only leave me naked, defenseless, and vulnerable. See, we come into the world naked and leave this world naked, helpless, and vulnerable. A baby is, is helpless and vulnerable, and an older person, as they're dying, is every bit as helpless and vulnerable. Nothing can change that. My wife's uh, great-grandma, Nancy's great-grandma, would say this to her, we are an adult once and a baby twice. Twice. Helpless and vulnerable. I should, I, uh, Nancy told me that this uh, story was shared in the women's Wednesday morning Bible study by Joanne. They're working through Ecclesiastes. Let me share this story with you. There's a story of a very wealthy, stingy old man who got his wife to promise him that she would put all of his money in his casket with him so that he could take it to the afterlife. Because she was a good Christian woman, she couldn't break her promise, so on the day of the funeral, she got all of his money together and put it in her account, wrote him a check, <laughs> and put it in his suit pocket. So because of verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. That's why between birth and death, we are running around like crazy trying to get worldly wealth, make investments, working hard to be successful in order to cover our nakedness, our feeling of helplessness and vulnerability. We want to be in control, but what Job is saying, what Paul is paraphrasing, we can't. Job looked ahead, we look back to the only one who can cover our nakedness, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This will kind of get us set up for our communion here this morning. He was stripped naked on the cross for you so that you could be clothed in his righteousness. All the money in the world, all the possessions in the world can't give you the the acceptance, security, and significance that only Christ can give you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand that? We stand before God completely righteous. We have access into the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We're clothed in him. 
What was he willing to give up to gain you? Jesus gave up his throne, his glory, became naked, helpless, and vulnerable on the cross for us and ultimately for the Father's glory. 2 Corinthians 8 9, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. He became poor so that we might become rich. So that we might become rich. The more you realize that through his poverty you have become mega wealthy, the more you will live for true wealth, hold all things loosely. And here's the last one, simplify your life. Verse eight, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. It almost sounds like he's telling us to make a vow of poverty, but no, he isn't. He's actually telling us live in such a way that you have disposable income. And that's based on really verse 18 where he says they The rich, those that have a disposable income, they're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He's just saying, hey, learn to live on less. Don't live from paycheck to paycheck. No matter where you live on the socioeconomic scale, don't ever let luxuries become necessities. Be content with a simpler lifestyle, even though what all the people in your income bracket or neighborhood or vocational field would would consider necessities, you know are luxuries. Make that distinction. And as you make more and more money, don't be asking, how can I raise my standard of living, but how can I raise my standard of giving so that I can experience more true wealth in him? And the more money you have, the bigger the distance there should be between how you could live and how you do live. Let's pray. So Father, Father God, thank you for revealing to us that the secret of contentment is Christ in us, not, not us in a different set of circumstances. Help us to be more diligent and disciplined in the study of of good, healthy doctrine that produces this contentment in us, guarding us from the snare of covetousness. May Christ strengthen us to live for true wealth, hold all things loosely, and to simplify our lives so that we can maximize our generosity for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Take a minute, just, I'm gonna have you, I'm gonna read a text here, and I want you just to examine your life just before you take communion. And, um, and so it tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of, of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. So we don't want to do it in an unworthy manner. We need to examine ourselves then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on themselves. First of all, communion is for believers. And that's for believers who have fully embraced the gospel, which is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins, and all who repent and believe in him have everlasting life. And so you've done that. If you're a believer, you've indeed turned away from chasing the things of this world, and now you're pursuing him first and foremost. And as believers, this is how we would examine our life As believers, we are never to do this in an unworthy manner, which is ritualistic, indifferently, with an unrepentant heart, a spirit of bitterness, or any other ungodly attitude such as a love for money or anything more than God. We just take a minute, just examine your heart. What is God speaking to you this morning?
as you are finished examining your heart before God, feel free to come up to one of the three stations here. There's a station in the overflow you'll find at the front. And make sure you grab both of the cups. They're double cupped. And then take it back to your seat, and I will walk us through the process here this morning.